For this episode, we've partnered with Needed, the leading women's health supplement brand recommended by nutritionally trained practitioners. Did you know that 95% of women who take prenatals are still nutrient deficient? Most prenatals are designed to meet bare minimum needs, not to optimally nourish you. We love that Needed's products are based on the latest clinical research and that they focus on care before, during, and after pregnancy. Get optimal nutrition and save 20% off your first month at thisisneeded.com with code FDU. You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. I am Dr. Carrie Obedient, and this is another episode of the Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am joined here today by my two ravishing and radiant co-hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. And Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello, hello. And we are also joined today by Paxton Mayer York, who is the CEO and founder of A Life. And so we are going to be talking about a lot of the the future of uh, robotics and AI in the IVF world and the medical world as it pertains to all of us. But um, as we were just chit-chatting ahead of time, as we were getting ready to record, um, Paxton, you're picking up a new, not a new hobby, uh, an old hobby that you're picking up again, right? You got it. And thank you so much for having me here. Um, as I understand, we start with some topics that are non-IVF related. And <laughs> yes. I am, in fact, uh, starting to play the viola again. The viola is an instrument somewhere between a violin and a cello. I played for many years, was in orchestra in high school. And then when I got to college, I uh, put it down for about 12 years. And um, I am now starting to play again, which has been really fun. I started about four or five months ago. And it was crazy how fast it came back. I was never very good, just for the record. So I still <laughs> am not very good. I just got back to where I was. Of not you weren't going to go to Juilliard? No, definitely <laughs> not. Um, but it was amazing. Like after only just a few weeks, I was kind of back to the old level that I was. And it just, uh, it, it really, I think was a great example of the neuroplasticity of a young person that you can kind of, you know, practice an instrument and then never touch it for over a decade. Mm -hmm. And it comes back within, you know, a, a few weeks. So it's, it's been very fun. So do you have a, uh, an instructor or are you just like picking it up and playing periodically just in your own home? Or are you going to try and join a group again? Like what's do you do you have bigger designs on this project or just to pick it up occasionally? <laughs> I have massive ambitions on this project. No, I, uh, so I did take a couple of virtual lessons, which was really nice. Yeah. And since then, um, you know, I, I rented a, an instrument for a few months and then, uh, recently purchased one. Uh, oh, cool. one. and so, um, but no, I think long term, it's, it's really just something that I like to do. It, it really felt like a part of me was missing, like a limb was mm -hmm. missing. And so picking it back up has been very gratifying in my life. It exercises the brain. Um, yeah. It really Noise my dog who has to listen to me practice <laughs> preach on the instrument. Um, but no, it's it's been really rewarding. And maybe someday I'll join, you know, a small uh, you know, chamber group or you know, a quartet or something just just for fun. So I had a little dog. I was about to ask, like, what do your neighbors think of your uh <laughs> time? Uh, well, here here in Cambridge, um in Massachusetts at the moment, uh the neighbors don't complain too much, but we'll see how it goes when I when I move back to New York and I have uh you know joining walls with other folks. I'm sure I'll oh, be yeah. 
notes. Uh, you know, don't practice at 2 a.m. I hear is probably a good rule. <laughs> yeah, I have a little little bit of a similar experience. My I played flute and played flute even through college and even took from a Suzuki flute instructor and and really enjoyed it and was part of a flute wind ensemble when I was in college. It was really fun. And so my daughter, when she went, when she was in the fifth grade, she decided to play flute and I didn't really pressure her, but she decided. So when the time came that we had to buy an instrument, I had never bought an open hole flute and I always wanted an open hole flute, never got one. So I bought her an open hole flute, but I told her, I said, now when you graduate from high school, if you're not going to use it, it reverts back to me and I get your open hole flute. So fast forward, she went off to college last year. And so I have my flute, my flute stand set up in the next room. And I've kind of fallen off a little bit, but it's it's kind of hard when you're my age to an old dog to learn new tricks and to get the fingering differently for the open hole. But I've, I've done okay, but it's just a little, it's a little bit frustrating. So I don't know, I may, may revert back to just my regular flute. <laughs> I, but it's fun. I enjoy it. I played French horn growing up and um, two of my three kids ended up playing French horn. And when my oldest started playing he was having some trouble doing some things and I was just like let me just try Here's this and I was like <laughs> I was amazed that I was remembering all the fingerings and like how to actually make the sounds yeah. so, so much of it had to do with your embouchure and everything like that and I was like wow this isn't as heinous as I thought it was <laughs> it's fun it kind of takes you back to the days when you're in orchestra it is, but just like you said, it, it's amazing how how quickly your your body just remembers how to make those different sounds happen with just little you know tweaks of Incredible. whether it's yeah. your hand position or your finger strength or whatever. Yeah, it's pretty phenomenal. All right, so Susan, what questions do we have today? All right, so here's our first one: Is there any impact on Botox disport injections during the trying to conceive or IVF journey. My husband and I have been trying to conceive for two years and I just completed my egg retrieval procedure. Results from my PGTS, t PGTA testing come in the next couple of weeks and praying I'll be able to do the FET prep soon. I understand getting Botox is a no-no during pregnancy and the last time I got it done was about a year ago. I've been hesitant to get it again for fear it would have some negative impact. But I'd love to smooth out these forehead wrinkle lines if possibly, especially before <laughs> FET. What do you think? I don't know. What do you guys think? <laughs> I think if you don't think it's a good idea during pregnancy, it's probably not a good idea when you're trying to get pregnant. So, you know, as much as none of us want to have forehead wrinkle lines, you know, we also want to make sure you have every little success rate possible. And, you know, it, it's it's one round of Botox. Save it for after you deliver when you really need to work on those wrinkle lines. <laughs> Yeah, and you just don't know. If you don't know, then like Susan said, don't do it. So all of all of those questions are very regular questions for me here in Vegas. <laughs> um, and there's really not a whole lot of data about it. Um, the, the biggest thing that I tell my patients about a ton of stuff is if you have a negative outcome and you're going to think back and go, oh, why did I do whatever it is that Blank. you did? Don't do it. Because the guilt you will have is going to cause way more wrinkles than the Botox <laughs> is going to help you with. And so, um, you know, I, I don't, it's a local injection. If you do it now before FET, who knows if it's actually going to make a difference, but you, because you are asking this question, you will think slash know that it makes a difference and you will never forget that if you have a negative pregnancy test or miscarriage or whatever. And so it's probably easier to just not do it um, and to wait. And I guarantee you that uh, the pregnancy glow that you're going to have is going to make you far more radiant than any Botox could ever get. And you're going to be fabulous. 
Sounds good. One more. Hi, docs. Thank you so much for all that you share. I'm in the start of my medicated journey to pregnancy after a year and a half of trying. As I consider my options, if Medicaid cycles don't work, I want to ask, what is the big difference between traditional IVF and transferring a donated embryo? What are differences in cost success rates, testing needed, and medication prepping? Thanks so much. That could be like a whole That's segment a whole that we could do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but we can do a concise sure. answer. Yeah, I mean, when you're doing IVF, you know, we have to stimulate your ovaries to produce multiple eggs. You go through a surgical procedure. We test your embryos genetically. And then we transfer the embryo in. When you do a cycle with just a donor embryo, is that what she said? A mm-hmm. donated embryo? Donor embryo. Essentially, mm-hmm. you're just doing the second part. We don't want to stimulate your ovaries. We don't need to stimulate your ovaries because we're not trying to get eggs out. All we're trying to do is take an embryo and make sure it has a good home to implant in. So essentially, we would treat you with hormones to thicken your lining um, for about four to six weeks and transfer the embryo. And so in a sense, you're kind of doing the second part of a whole complete IVF cycle, basically. With respect to success rates, it's highly dependent on the embryo that you're getting. And donor embryos are not necessarily easy to get. Um, If you happen to know someone who can give them to you, if you know a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, that is actually really helpful because finding donated embryos can be very, very challenging. The quality and success rates that you will have is entirely dependent on the quality of the embryo that you're getting. So if you are getting an embryo from someone who had to use an egg donor and it was a, you know, otherwise young, healthy sperm provider, then that's going to be a wildly different success rate than someone who's 41 years old who made three embryos. She transferred two, got one baby out of it and decided she was good. And there's just one remaining. So knowing those criteria is really really important. And what you get is what you get. Because unlike a donor egg where you can say, I want a five foot eight blonde with green eyes and a propensity for stringed instruments, um, (laughs) you know, you're, you're the... The egg and sperm providers of the donated embryo are who they are, and there's really not a whole lot of selection. Price-wise, there's a huge difference. So um, generally speaking, realize with IVF, you're probably looking at spending, if you have no insurance coverage, probably around twenty to 25000 mm-hmm. If you're doing an embryo transfer with a donated embryo, so the embryo transfer, I'm going to approximate around $4,000 for an embryo transfer, give or take, depending on region of the country, et cetera. But you're going to pay for that with your other cycle anyway. The cost of a donated embryo ballpark is approximately somewhere between one to $3,000 an embryo. Again, depending on where you get your embryo and that type of thing. Um, so, you know, I think you are obviously have already opened your mind up to the possibility of donated embryo. Otherwise, you would have never asked the question. Um, and and a lot of it is a heart versus brain decision is how the the difference in giving up the genetics versus the I can get potentially to a baby sooner. Um, and then there, there is a significantly different cost um, issue as well. Absolutely. And we need to tag that one as a future episode right there. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So we are joined by Paxton Mayor York, who is the CEO and founder of A-Life, which is... we we talk to a lot of very bright guests on this show. You're kind of an intimidating one because of all of the technology that you know how to use and program and the the way of thinking ahead. So in small words, please, um, <laughs> can you tell us what A-Life does and, 
and what you're what you're what you currently have to offer and then we'll go into all the tangents that are going to come from that sure absolutely um so a life health is really focused on bringing advanced analytics and artificial intelligence to the ivf sector and before i go too deep in using any complex jargon uh <laughs> artificial intelligence just for everyone's clarification is really just computer enhanced pattern recognition that's really all it is and so what a life does is we build software both for the clinic and for patients that leverage analytics and pattern recognition using computers to optimize and personalize care to try to reduce costs and increase your chances of having a baby at the end of the day. That's really the basis of the of the whole company. Um, you know, when we look at IVF as an industry, it's a, it's a relatively new area of medicine. It's one that's been growing uh, very quickly and also developing in terms of the type of technologies that we have. And what our team is really focused on is being the technology partner to the industry, leveraging cutting edge analytics and software uh, to really try to supercharge what doctors and patients uh, like yourselves are, are going through and, and how we can bring the best care possible to as many people as possible, since we know that there are lots that need uh, IVF treatment and, and infertility care. So that's really who we are um, in, in terms of uh, what we build. So there are a number of different components to our ecosystem. Uh, we really think about it as uh, who the major stakeholders are. So we have one tool that is focused on the clinician, the reproductive endocrinologist, and that helps optimize the starting dose dosage as well as trigger timing for ovarian stimulation. As we talked about earlier, ovarian stimulation is really the first step of the process. It's getting eggs out of the mother. Um, and using analytics and AI, we can increase uh, the number of eggs that can be retrieved and decrease the amount of drugs that are typically used in that process, saving dollars. Um, we also have tools that help clinic managers maintain quality across multiple practices. We have a tool that digitalizes the embryology workflow so that there's a really clean report and auditing function so that patients can have a printout of all their embryos and really have understanding and transparency around what their options are. And then we just launched a patient app, uh, which is now in the iOS store. And that tool is actually completely free to patients. Uh, we had hundreds of conversations with folks and, and really what came through was this challenge of staying organized around the appointments, around the medication practices and everything. Uh, people using sticky notes and binders and all sorts of stuff. So um, our team decided to build an app that we hope uh, helps people stay organized. And there's lots of additional functionality that that we're going to be layering onto that system. But uh, right now, you can download it in the app store. So what is the app like? If I'm if I'm a patient who's got her first appointment scheduled with the REI, and I hear about this app, and I'm like. I'll just download it. Like what, how, how am I going to use that as the patient to make life more organized? Yeah. So right now it's an independent tool where you can put in appointment reminders. If you're at the grocery store and you forget to take your medication it'll remind you and give Ooh. you a little notification. Um, it can, you know, take test results. It can track costs across your IVF journey. You can do multiple cycles with it. Um, it's really kind of a one-stop organization tool uh, for anyone going through the, the program. And then as our clinical products, which are really focused on assisting doctors and embryologists in delivering the best care humanly possible, um, as those are adopted by clinic, if your clinic happens to be on the A-Life ecosystem, then all of your appointments, reminders, medications, ovarian stimulation protocol, all of that gets pushed to the app automatically. So it's really about creating kind of this, this integrated ecosystem of tools that just makes everything more streamlined, communication more transparent, everyone can stay more organized, and you're having the benefit of 
having uh, the best op, you know, opportunity for a successful outcome as possible because we're pulling best practices from all over the world. So the app itself is not just for people seeking IVF, but all fertility patients. Yeah, any anyone going through uh, IVF now and then long term will be anyone uh, thinking about you know conceiving in general. Um, but it all you know there's analytics that are in there, and and one of the things that we found, um, and we're also working on a tool that'll be launched uh, soon, um, is around just trying to explain to patients their expectations around you know the IVF attrition rate, how many eggs they can expect, and how wow that is phenomenal all the way down to the <laughs> embryos, which we know is a huge problem. Um, so there's a bunch of AI and analytics that we've built into a tool that uh, will create basically a personalized IVF report that we can provide patients or clinicians can use as kind of a consult tool. Um, so there's a lot going into thinking, how can we improve education and, and transparency as patients approach uh, the IVF journey? So how do patients have access to that information about attrition and how does that work? Yeah, so it, it's going to be an online tool, and it, I'm, I'm, my team will probably get mad at me if I talk too much about it. Okay, but, well, we won't, um, we won't crush you too much, but that is going to be an excellent tool. I want to know what the website is, because we talk about that all the time, and I think Carrie was the one, and I, now I have adopted this with all my patients. You know, when they come through IVF, I say, it's like a funnel effect. You start out with this many eggs, this many fertilized, this many developed, and, and continually, even though I tell everybody the, the same thing, you know, at least... Once every couple of months, I have a patient that's just blown away. Like, why did I only get three blastocysts? Because you're right. human, you know, that's that's just what happens. And so that will be really helpful to, because I'll engage, I engage patients sometimes with a, a Brigham and Women's um, mm -hmm. calculator for, you know, women who are trying to freeze eggs, how many eggs they should freeze based on right. their age and that sort of thing. So that'll be really helpful in office for physicians to utilize. That's great. We really appreciate Absolutely. that. Yeah, of course. So um, it's exactly, you, you hit it, the nail on the head. It's, it's really, a, a much more, um, uh, you know, integrated and expansive version of the Brigham Women Calculator, which is just here in Boston. And, oh yeah, that's right. Uh, and uh, you know, it's it's leveraging you know hundreds of thousands of historical patients mm -hmm. uh, to create these kind of success profiles and uh, tell you how, what your chances of success are after multiple cycles and how many eggs you can expect for retrieval and how you fit within your your age distribution, your AMH distribution, and what happens if you wait. There are all sorts of kind of uh, levers and tools in there just to make sure that um, patients have as much clarity as that you possibly can before going into the procedure. How predictive is it, uh, just because you were talking about like the future and I, I have you know, there's always that patient that pops in our head whenever we have guests. And how how predictive is it for that young woman who has um, lab tests that shows she has diminished ovarian reserve, but it was one of those, like, we just, you know, they came in to get things checked out and it's like, oh, your FSH is 12 and you're 24. Like, this doesn't match up. But unfortunately, it's what what it is. How how predictive is, is your algorithms in that type of situation? Yeah, so that that's a great example of a patient who I think would benefit from a tool like this because it's going to one give them much more of a comprehensive sense of what their chances are of going through, um, and also where they fit within their criteria. Right? You you called out that you wouldn't expect those numbers out of a patient of that age, and so you know for 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 a patient or a clinician to be able to say here here's where you fit in this in this spectrum. It looks like you're unfortunately on the low end. Here are a couple of things that we can think about doing proactively around your fertility so we can make sure that you have the best chances possible. Um, maybe it makes sense to do, you know, a round of egg freezing at this point or embryo freezing. Um, all, all of that is kind of taken into account. And it's it's really wonderful that you guys talk about the IVF funnel today, because if you think about where it's, you know, artificial intelligence and our clinical tools fit in, 
it's really at the top and bottom of that funnel right now. And we expect over time to fig, you know, fill in the middle. But um, you know, we have the embryo tool, which helps at the bottom of the funnel. Once you have kind of a couple of blastocysts, which one do you transfer? And it takes into account the PGT results and the patient's metaparameters, um, as well as the lab grade and, and kind of helps prioritize that transfer to increase standardization and, and improve success rates. And then also, you know, that at the end of the day, you only have so many embryos to work with. What can we do at the top of the funnel to increase the number of eggs that are getting retrieved? Because we know that that flows through um, the process. And so that's why we built the stem assist tool, which is really focused on getting patients more eggs. So Paxton, where do you get that data? Because I know there's a lot you can get from SART information, but you don't get a lot of the nitty gritty details about how many eggs they had. And so I'm just curious, because in order to analyze data, you've got to have data. And where do you get that data? Great question. So with anything in artificial intelligence or analytics, um, you know, it's it's you have to have a data set that you're working off of. And not just a data set, it needs to be a very large, very heterogeneous mm-hmm. and unbiased data set. And, and those are really important criteria. Um, we've spent an enormous amount of time building a data set through partnerships with many of the biggest clinics and a ton of clinics across the com- country. And, and now we're doing it internationally as well. Mm. And the way to think about what the software does is we're really talking about bringing the best practices from all over the place to wherever that patient is. So if there happened to be a patient being seen, um, you know, in Las Vegas, for example, um, and there was a similar patient like that seen in either in Norway or in, uh, you know, Eastern Florida, for example, um, being able to have software that instantaneously brings those patient records and provides a recommendation um, at your fingertips so that you know, okay, Okay, wow, we, we've seen patients like this as a, as a you know as an industry before. There are a couple of things that have worked uh, best in the past, and I'm going to integrate that into as a factor as I'm making my clinical decision making. Um, and so, you know, what we've done is we've built this huge data set through these partnerships. Uh, it's incredibly heterogeneous from socioeconomic standards to diagnosis standards, which is obviously super important. Um, and ethnic ethnicity, it's it's representative of the United States, uh, nearly one to one, which is so important. That's amazing. Um, yeah. Forward. Yeah. That's it's, great. It's, it's super important. We also know there's a lot of, um, you know, health inequity and unfortunate disparities between different types of patient populations. And so there's a lot of really cool stuff we can do with data science to kind of pull out interesting, um, you know, correlations and provide that back to the clinician. So it all all stems from that. And then the last thing I'll say uh, is, you know, our, our systems are constantly tracking and um, structuring new data. So one of the challenges is that a lot of the data in this industry is somewhat unstructured and hard to get, which took us a long time to kind of accumulate enough. Um, yeah. But over time, the, the algorithms will get better and better as they see more and more patients. So whenever I hear this type of thing, I, I kind of think of it being more the being more useful for experienced physicians in the in the cases of it didn't work and it should have or things just don't match up. Is that where you really kind of focus it? Because I, I mean, you know, if I have kind of a quote normal patient, I'm all of us are pretty darn good at what we do, you know, otherwise we wouldn't be sitting here today. Um, how how do you see it? I mean, in outside of the realm of maybe physician extenders and things like that, but 
say the three of us were were to use something, how 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 do people use this in their practices to help improve their patient care? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, you know, whenever introducing new technology, my background's also in robotic surgery. I worked in many years in on uh, surgical robotic platforms for lung cancer. Um, and similarly in that sector, anytime you're introducing a new piece of uh, medical technology, um, there's always that question of, is this going to make me better? You know, I've got a lot of experience in space, you know, is there, and, um, you know, I think one, uh, it's, the proof is in the data, right? And and seeing how, you know, um, you know, following the recommendations versus not impact patient outcomes. Uh, We have seen, we've given the tool and and have uh, customers and and partners that are using it that are extremely experienced doctors with, you know, 30 plus years of experience. And um, what's been really exciting is that, you know, as they use the tool, they kind of trust it more and more over time. And then they see significant changes in, in terms of, um, you know, their starting dose, their average starting dose drops by 100 IUs typically. Wow, that's interesting. Um, and their, you know, their average M2 egg yield goes up by one, one and a half M2s. And, and these are folks that have been practicing for a long time. I do think that there are a couple things that for maybe the more skeptical docs, there's automatic kind of benefits to it. Um, you know, one, obviously, as you mentioned, physician extenders, APPs, you know, um, you know, more recent fellows who just want a second opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that a lot of doctors, not on every case, but in some cases, the you know the procedure timing decision is a big one where maybe you occasionally get a second opinion, and and there we provide a lot of benefit. Um, but I think one of the one of the biggest areas is um, you know just having, as you said, when a procedure may not go the right way or or how the patient hoped, um, giving that patient the comfort that the optimal practice was delivered and the optimal treatment was delivered, you know, can help retain patients and keep them from going across the street to another practice. Right. Um, but ultimately, you know, we we publish a ton of clinical studies. Like we, we're, we're really rigorous um, about showing the benefit. And so, you know, if you're ever interested, we'd be happy to give you the software and, and let you play around with it and try it out. And, um, you know, we've co-published with some of the, you know, you know, kind of top docs and people in the space uh, who do a ton of research. And um, it's been really exciting to see that, see that happen. What are the- I would love to have access to it. Send it my way. That'd be great. <laughs> We'll get you signed up. No problem. Okay. What are the what are the pain points in it? Like, where are the spots where you're like, oh my gosh, this this is the next on my list. Like, if I could just snap my fingers, I would change this, fix it, enhance it, whatever it may be. Like, what's what are the top two or three things that you're like, all right, this is this is not optimal yet. This is really annoys people, doesn't work, whatever. And this is where we're we're going to work on. Yeah. Uh, wow. That's a great question. So I, I would say it's, you know, the first thing is just um, in general, it's an additional piece of software and it needs to be integrated with EMRs. And depending on what EMR people work with, you know, some are easier to work with than others. Those integrations. Yes. <laughs> um, if I had a magic wand, I would integrate it with all the EMRs tomorrow and just give it to everybody. Um, mm. So that would be kind of the first thing. I think the second thing is in general, um, the last thing we want to do is add burden to anyone's practice. And we know that you guys are extremely busy. Everyone in the staff is extremely busy logging onto another another portal. Everybody hates doing that. Um, so, you know, long term, my hope is that all of these different softwares that everybody's using just get consolidated into one beautiful ecosystem. And I think that goes for the patients as well. Um, and that's that's part of kind of the A-life dream, right? Is we've seen a lot of point solutions. They kind of integrate with each other, but long term, we should just have one beautiful text, tech stack, right? Like 
kind of like Google Suite where, you know, where you have Gmail and Gcal, mm-hmm. and Google Drive and Google awesome. Docs and all those things. It'd be nice just to have one thing for IBM. So when it's giving its recommendations, is it mm-hmm. giving what I would consider like mainstream recommendations? Like this is how much, you know, gonadotropins you should use? Or is it adding in things like, should you add in oral medications? Should you add in growth hormones? Should this be the person who goes to a reproductive immunologist? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the things that aren't <laughs> outside of kind of necessarily our everyday. I mean, a lot of these things we do, um, but like, wh- where does it go? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, long-term, let's, would love to partner with you on those edge cases and build those in. Uh, we certainly have had a lot of conversations about, you know, more complex recommendations. Um, you know, one thing I want to just be super clear about is, as this, this tool is not, you know, replacing clinical judgment. It's not... Oh, yeah giving you guys the answer what it what it's doing is it's it's looking from a huge database and providing you know for starting dose for example a dose response curve and and allows you guys to see the trade-offs based on similar patients what what the recommendation might be and you know typically there's there's an optimal dose because many patients as you'd expect look like inverse parabolas um with yeah. kind of peak uh, out, outcome based or it's on- not always better <laughs> exactly which which is you know it can be surprising but but that's certainly the case there's we find that there's an optimal starting dose. Um, you know, I think over time we'll continue to expand. We just added a bunch of cool new functionality to it, uh, like lead follicle measurements, and we can now forecast two, three days out the E2 levels as well as the M2 high yield. Um, we're building a very cool tool around scheduling. Um, so, you know, understanding how to level load your practice and how many retrievals you're going to have a week out. And we're leveraging the analytics on the STEM side, which are proving clinical improvement to also now help you guys understand, you know, do I need an extra embryologist on this Saturday or not? Um, so there's there's just kind of all this integrated software that that we're building. But, um, you know, it takes time. And, and we're very lucky that we have extremely dedicated and uh, focused team at A-Life. A lot of people have interacted or had to go through IVF themselves or are part of same-sex couples who are going to need them to start a family. So it's a very mission-oriented company. So can you tell us just a little bit, changing gears, a little bit about what capabilities you have in the IVF lab? Just, you know, briefly, I know there's a lot of details. And then where you see the where you see it going in the future? What's your next goal? Yeah, so in, in the lab, um, you know, we, we've got our embryo assist tool, which is really focused on digitalizing the embryology workflow. So, you know, we see a lot of times that people are, you know, looking down the microscope on the ICSI microscope and writing down in pen and paper what the grades are and then <laughs> to put them in the EMR. Um, we would like to eliminate those days. Um, we have a tool that sits on the ICSI microscope. It's connected to the EMR on the internet. It takes images of the embryos you can put in your lab grade, you can audit, you can put in PGT results, the fate. It's a kind of a command center for the embryologist. And all of that can automatically click a button, generate a report that can go off to the clinician. So you guys have real time. There's no delay in knowing the quality of the embryos. Um, And then you can also automatically generate things that you want to share with the patient. So you can create an embryo report of whichever embryo or this is the one that was just transferred. Here's just Mm -hmm. the photo of it, whatever you might want. Um, And then baked into that is is algorithms or algorithms that help uh, rank those embryos, right? And and most of the time, it's pretty straightforward. But there are corner cases where, um, you know, the embryo embryologist, whether they may be a more junior folk or or not, yeah. <laughs> um, may not always come up with the same grade. And so this is a tool that helps automate 
Um, long term, you know, there's a lot that can be done in the lab, um, but we we really focus on kind of the software and the analytics component, um, and also you know making sure that we track. There's a tool called Insights, which is really for clinic clinic management as we're seeing more consolidation. This helps track everything that's happening outcomes wise, um, blastocyst rates, everything in in the lab as well as your clinic. And so you can set alerts. You can make sure that you know, let's say you have bad media or something may happen. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's not six months before you figure that out. It's yeah. you know. A couple of days, you're seeing, you know, dips and blast rates and you say, okay, we got a problem. Let's go figure it out. And um, hopefully that can save a lot, a lot of time and pain down the line. There's a huge amount of, I know. of things that can be automated. And I'm, I'm just imagining um, how, like what practice is going to look like in 10 years when all we have to do is say, okay, I've got a 37 year old with an AMH and an AFC and an FSH of this, that, and the other thing. And how, have you seen it make any really dramatic recommendations? So let's say you've got somebody who's on their third IVF cycle and her egg retrievals have been pretty much on par with what you would expect. And her embryo results are, you know, on par with what you would expect. Like they're not, they're not terrible. They're not great. She's still not pregnant. She still hasn't gotten where she is. Are there, are there dramatically different recommendations that are made in those cases? Um, not typically. We we haven't seen any like radically out of, you know, dose at 800, you know, IUs of FSH at the starting dose. Um, you know, I think what we typically see is that the tools are really helpful in, in helping to understand and create a baseline for those patients of what to expect. And I think we're, we're really the value, right? Like if you're continuing to go through one, you know, that patient who may have unfortunately had a couple cycles that that didn't go their way, um, you know, by leveraging the AI and you know, you can think of it a little bit like Google, right? Like it, you're typing in and it, a patient's, met, you know, parameters and it's searching a database for a bunch of patients like them and giving you the results of what, what worked. Um, you know, hopefully it gives them confidence that the best practices and the best, you know, treatment recommendations were being made. Um, and then, you know, there, we know that there's tough conversations that happen after a number of failed cycles, right? Um, should we be considering donor? You know, what, what other parameters can we change in this equation that, um, sorry, I'm a math and stats guy, um, that, that might result in a better outcome here. And, and so for those types of things, I think going back to the success predictor um, analytics tool for patients, like things like that can kind of assist in those conversations. Um, but the shorter answer is no, we don't have any like, uh, you know, extraordinary measures uh, component of the software that, um, you know, tells you something crazy to do at the end of the day, because ultimately we, we want, you know, to kind of converge towards the best practice for a patient like that every time. So you had just mentioned your success predictor. Is that part of the app or is that part on the physician side? So that part is going to be launched on the website, um, but it's going to, basically, there's going to be a clinician console tool version as well as a patient um, version. So, um, you know, and, you know, as you guys go through and are having those types of conversations, we can make it available to you and uh, to assist in in those discussions. Um, And then, you know, there's a lot of analytics built into the stim assist tool set too. And we've already seen physicians who are, you know, having that conversation. It's the third failed cycle. And, you know, they're talking about starting dose and, We've already, you know, done interviews where the clinician turns the screen around and shows them the curve and says, look, this is your curve. We've looked at 100 patients just like you. This is, you know, how they all reacted. I'm, you know, this is probably the right answer for your third cycle. And, you know, this is the course of treatment we recommend. Do you have any data on the the impact on the patient decision making? 
And that is a great question. I don't think we have anything quantitative at this exact point. And it would depend on which decision you're talking about, right? Um, are you just donor talking- my own egg again? Don't that's that would be really helpful <laughs> information. I, I'm curious. I'm curious yeah. because I mean, you know, we all have our way we explain diminished ovarian reserve and age and all those things. And it would be really helpful both from our standpoint as well as the patient standpoint, knowing if we present that information in conjunction with your information, like how how often that would potentially make a difference in a patient decision-making process. Yeah. Because um, it can well, be agonizing for patients to make that decision too. Yeah, they just, that's, they that's go, one of the hardest whereas, decisions they ever make. Whereas made. if they saw data in front of them, I think that'd make a big difference. But I, I'm curious if it does mm. that. Well, we we haven't run a study on that. And if you guys are interested in running a little study and uh, yeah. like some data on it, we would love to publish it with you. Um, you know, I think going back to your earlier question um, around what does a practice look like in the long run, you know, we're never going to be taking away jobs. If, in, if anything, we're just enabling more people to be physician extenders and hopefully treat more patients at the end of the day. Um, but where, you know, really good clinicians make or break any, and you guys all know this, is around patient care and judgment. That's that's really what, you know, clinicians are, are bringing to the table. And so, you know, that decision is so difficult. I can only imagine having to go through that type of decision as a patient. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're not here to replace what you guys are going to be doing in terms of helping patients navigate those those difficult conversations. But to the extent that we can support you in those in those decisions and, and also providing some analytics or some data or some high level statistics that are specific to that patient in that case. So they have that at their fingertips when when having the discussion. We think that there's value to that. Um, and again, we would love to do a study and see, see what it what it does to the patient decision-making process as they go through it. You know, a good example of where I think that may be beneficial is a patient that I'm going to see tomorrow that's 44. She's had three children in the past that are now like 10, 12, 14, and she has a new partner and he's 52. And she's coming to see me because she's had infertility for two years. So I think it'd be really helpful for somebody in that age group to really understand that, yeah, even though you were fertile 10 or 12 years ago, things changed dramatically in that amount of time. And when you're 44, there's a big difference. And if you could see a curve of here's what happens to most people that go through, I think in that situation, that might help somebody. You know, she's probably already thinking that, but if she sees data, I think that would be really helpful. It would save her a lot of time and expense doing treatments that are probably not going to be very effective. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's, it's, we've done a, we've got an incredible design team. And so, you know, one of the challenges just in general, and and I've faced this as I've gone through a little bit of the process myself, is just where all this information sits and how digestible it is, right? There's so much of it out on the internet and Facebook and Reddit and, you know, random blogs and all sorts of stuff. And and even those types of statistics or curves, you know, you can Google image them and they're very difficult to digest and it's unclear how that pertains to you and where you specifically fit. So a lot of those problems are things that our team is working really, really hard on and and how do we provide that information not just specific to that patient because that's you know the first thing you have to do but to make it you know very digestible and clear so that you know it, it can help them understand where they sit in their fertility journey and and you know maybe inform some of the decisions they may be making um, about either not waiting so long to go and see an infertility specialist or um, you know considering you know a, a different path for for expanding their family or or whatever it might be do you think any 
any of these technologies are going to take the place of some of the the physical procedures in there. I mean, you've got a robotics background, robotic surgery background. Is there any way to take these and do do ICSI or do the biopsy or those types of things to remove the human element from it? I think long term, yes. Um, you know, and there are a number of companies out there that are working on kind of lab in the box, you know, functionality and, and capabilities. Um, you know, robotics definitely will have a place. Um, you know, I think there is some level of automation that we can expect. I mean, we saw we've seen enormous amounts of um, automation and other types of industries, and I would be very hesitant to compare, you know, IVF to you know biotech or or larger, you know, traditional biological manufacturing. So there are some some things happening in cellular engineering and robotics that are pretty interesting that might be able to be brought over. Um, but sure, I th- I think long term there's there's some things that you know, where automation and robotics can make a difference in terms of standardization and just quality control and making sure. But, um, you know, at least from a lot of the labs I visited, I think, you know, people are extremely diligent. The lab technician staff work really, really hard. Um, and so the bigger question, I think, is, is you know, how do we how do we continue to expand the availability of these services to more and more folks, right? We know we're just scratching the surface of how many people need IVF. And, and that's only growing as we see sperm counts declining, as we see the LGBTQ plus community growing, as we see average, you know, first child birth rate, you know, birth age increasing. Um, all of those trends are pushing more and more patient demand on this sector. And when we only have whatever, 46, 47 fellowships in the country, um, there, we just have a huge supply and demand imbalance. And so that's where I think automation, analytics, AI, things like this technology can really help us um, bridge that gap um, and hopefully, you know, supercharge the the quality of care and the amount of care that can be delivered by the current system. You know, if I had a wish for the future, I'm thinking about things in the future that would be really helpful. And this is a little bit out of what you do, but I think you probably have a computer engineering background. I wish somebody could develop a program for our computers that could tell us where the egg is because patients just don't get the concept that we put a needle in this fluid filled sac and why didn't the egg come out? Why didn't you get the egg? Well, I don't know. It's one cell big and I can't see it. So I don't know if it needs to be some sort of Tracer. program program mm-hmm. to figure out where maybe where there's more blood flow in a certain area and therefore you'd assume that that's where the, the, the egg is or if it would be some sort of dye you inject, which would be out of your realm, but dye you inject that, you know, magnifies the egg or makes it look a different color. Who knows? That's something we could really use. So if you're looking for new ideas, that would be something we could really use. (laughs) All right. It's great to hear. Yeah. I mean, there's there's certainly a lot we can do, um, you know, in terms of image recognition and and seeing if there's ways we could pick up signal um, from the, you know, transvaginal ultrasound with the needles. Yeah. It'd have to be like You could even see where the concentration of granulosa cells are. I'm I'm sitting here like going through like robotics in my mind. I'm like, because I think of my embryology reports and it's like, oh, um, egg had little resistance or had lots of resistance. And like, I'm like, seriously, like it it would be neat just to have a measure, like have a measurement. What is normal resistance? You know, and, you know, just, and again, we, we think we are so advanced and we are, we are so young as a subspecialty and there's so many exciting things that are going to happen over the next 50 years that we cannot even fathom. 
I mean, seriously, it, it's just, it's you so know, exciting. And it, it's exciting to have people like you involved in the process yeah, to make, you know, these dreams come true. Yeah. Really Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. It was a lot of fun. I hope you guys will have me back sometime in the future. We would love to. Absolutely. <laughs> So to our audience, thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Um, make sure you register for the conference at New Braunfels. It's on October 28th. We would love to see you. We have an action-packed day with uh, specialists from all over the country, everyone from OBGYNs to REIs to nutritionists to acupuncturists, financial, all of the all of the big areas. So come and see us and hang out with us. You can also visit us on fertility.uncensored.com to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on our podcast for the Ask the Doc segment. or be happy. We'd be love to hear episode ideas. Leave those for us too. And we'll talk to you soon. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and it's not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to y'all soon. Talk to y'all later. Bye. Today's episode was brought to you by A-Life Health. Whether you're currently going through IVF or looking to create a digital record, the A-Life app can help you stay organized, informed, and empowered throughout the entire IVF journey. Download the A-Life app today, now available on the Apple App Store.